only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Direct from the Broski Nation headquarters in Los Angeles, California, this is the Broski Report with your host, Brittany Broski. Hello, Broski Nation. Holy shit. Holy shit. Oh, my God. I literally, I need you to know, oh, first of all, hey, guys, welcome back. I need you to know that I just ran from my bedroom into the podcast room because I have got to talk about this right fucking now. Because that's how my brain works. Really quick, Basgiath War College sweatshirt on the chesticle, okay? On the chest piece. We've got Basgiath War College Dragon Academy moment. Okay, in that vein, I just finished this book, A Court of Silver Flames, okay? Let me, there are so many things I want to say. If you are not trying to do book talk haul right now, don't give a fuck, dude. You're going to sit down. You're going to listen. You're going to take your hands off the wheel. You're going to turn up the volume. You're going to close your eyes and you're going to listen to me. Before I launch into <laughs> this, this novel, this what should be a EGOT winning novel, I want to go ahead and acknowledge first and foremost, if you have not read A Court of Thorns and Roses, if you have somehow missed the hype around it or you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about ever, please start it. I, I don't really know what else to advise at this point. A Court of Thorns and Roses, and I say this genuinely, earnestly, changed my life. A lot of the themes I talk about on this podcast really have to do with embracing that almost childhood, earnest, joyous love and enjoyment of things that are seen as either like juvenile or cringe or corny. I really am beyond those sort of descriptors and monikers. You know what I mean? Like, I want to enjoy the things I like free of judgment. And I'm doing that. And the whole community around Court of Thorns and Roses literally embodies that to me of being like a grown woman and loving what I love. And like, yeah, I, I can joke about it and kind of make fun of it. But like, to my core, I love that shit, dude. I love that shit. I love fantasy. Okay. I need to get into Dungeons and Dragons and find a Dungeons and Dragons boyfriend. I know this, dude. Just don't, you're telling me something louder. Fucking no. A Court of Thorns and Roses. If you have not read it, I just please give it a chance. Okay? Now, with that being said, I shit and farted and pooped all over this book. Okay? I spread my ass cheeks and I took a big steamer on this book before I read it. Because in the series... Nesta is the main character's sister, okay? And she is a rotted, gutted bitch. I hated her. I hated her. And you hate her on purpose because that's how she's written. She is just nasty. She is wretched and nasty. Have you ever had a person in your life who knows how to hurt you and they go in for the kill? And, you know, they always say hurt people hurt people. <laughs> it's true, Okay. Never has a greater phoenix metaphor been personified in human history than Nesta Archeron. Okay? That's also a line I got from Iron Man 2. So I just throw that out there before you guys credit me as being some, like, uh, crazy orator. Nesta I really fucking hated in the main four books. She ruined the, the fourth book, the Christmas special. Oh, she's such a bitch. This book was kind of hard for me to get into at first because I was like, I'm really... You know, ever oh, she has a redemption arc. I really don't care enough about her character to even pay attention. I love a redemption arc. I love if it's if it's well planned and it's well earned and it's, you know, with enough pension and sort of paying for your sins sort of thing to come out on the other side of being able to apologize or whatever. You know what I mean? 
I did not expect that out of this book. This book, what I really, really appreciate. Yes, it is a fantasy romance, okay? As all of Akatar is. It's steamy. It is a great plot. I honestly, this plot was, I was like, okay, I'm rocking with it. I'm rocking with it. It was, it was easy to follow, but it was also like, you know, the politics of Game of Thrones. I'm fucking with that, dude. I love that. It makes my dick hard. It makes my little girl dick hard. <laughs> Ew, sorry. I, you actually don't have to listen. <laughs> you have the choice, uh, freedom of choice to click off of the podcast. Please don't, please don't. This book, I'm going to give a spoiler for the next 10 seconds. Okay, you can skip forward. The fact that she says, I love you first ever in her life to her sister and not her man means more to me than I can ever, ever kind of, you know. Okay, spoiler over, spoiler over. The pacing in this book is great. I will say, they say this about Sarah J. Moss books, and I never really thought about it, but it's fucking true. The last hundred pages, these books are, how this is a 750 page book, okay? 750 pages. It keeps you going. It moves well. There's great character development, whatever. The last hundred pages, my asshole was clenched. I was, oh, I was, oh, I was laying in my bed. Oh my God. Oh, oh, and then what? And then, and then, and then, oh, it's over. That literally is over. I forgot that that bitch, that bitch Sarah J Mass. Oh, I owe my life to her. She does that. The, the last hundred pages I read in like 45 minutes. I was, <laughs> Paper cuts on my fingers, dude. So much happened. It was so action-packed, but it was also so like, yes, oh yeah, you get the yes, oh yes, dude. So, so good. And the redemption arc comes in a way that is not dismissive of the wrongs that she did. You know, like she was horrible to people. And she's not given this sort of blind forgiveness because she's hot or because she's high fae or she's a skilled warrior or whatever it comes through you know she punishes herself before anyone else could punish her as a lot of people do you know and the, and the reason that hurt people hurt people is because you're pushing them away before they can hurt you you know because there's enough hurt going on in your own brain to last you a lifetime sort of thing she powers through that and I really appreciate that Sarah J. Mass shows that that is not a linear process. That this also, I was seeing a lot of parallels to Aelin Galathinius in Throne of Glass and also to Manon uh, the Witch in Throne of Glass as well, where, you know, these are, are really strong female lead characters and they are not perfect, but it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm just a normal girl, just like you. They have their incredible all inspiring qualities, but they also have really wretched human qualities where we, we are cruel to each other. And, you know, when we throw venom and, and we spew venom at, at each other because we're afraid and we're afraid of being vulnerable. And so this book was equal parts action and adventure as it was sex, as it was fucking, <laughs> fucking. Capital F, capital G, dude. Damn. God. And you know who my fan cast is for Cassian? I'll show you. This is my Cassian, dude. Khan Yaman. Khan Yaman. This is my Cassian. I don't know jack shit about him, but I saw this as a fan cast on Pinterest. Yeah, dude. Holy shit. That is my Cassian right there. Turkish heartthrob. I don't know if he's problematic. I don't know what his tea is, but I'm fucking with it heavy. I'm fucking with that heavy. He looks a little bit like Maluma. Oh my God, that's my Cassian. Literally. God. Oh God. I'm knocking shit over. I start, when I start to get, oh, that bead of sweat drips down my back and I start just, I lose control of my hands, my phalanges, my appendages. This book was really, really good. I cried through the last 200 pages of it because something I appreciate as well is yes, romantic love is important in your life, okay? That is the narrative we are sold and to a certain extent, I agree. You know, there is something romantic love gives you that platonic love or familial love 
uh, can only quench so much in your soul. But this book implies that platonic friendship, love, and the love shared between women is just as, if not more, important. And I love any piece of media that really drives that point home, you know, of like women in this world. Drew actually made a TikTok about this the other day, and it literally brought me to tears. She said that, you know, when she was in college and and when she was kind of out in the world for the first time as a young woman, she was relatively unafraid and, you know, there would be scary men and all this shit. And she had no problem stepping up to scary, creepy men, aggressive men out at bars and like protecting her fellow woman. You know, like, hey, don't fucking touch her. Like, don't talk to her like that. Don't whatever. And then they would like, you know, stance up to her and she would win, of course, because Drew's like 6'1". And also like, yeah, because men don't expect you to change. Anyway, this narrative that's been sold of we see each other as, and this is me preaching to the choir, dude. Okay. You, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but I feel the need to drive it home. Women are not your competitors. They are not your enemies. Your fellow woman truly in this life is all you have in the systems and powers that be with the authorities that be women and the community of women bound together is so powerful. This sounds so fucking like, trust me, I know how it sounds. Like, do not twist the words in my mouth. I They taste acidic coming out. But even having to say that, you know, like qualifying that this isn't the TJ Maxx girl boss, you know, brand that that capitalism has turned it into. But I mean this in the most genuine way that in this life, the community of sisterhood is a sacred thing. And there's a character in this book who was a fraternal twin uh, to sisters and one of the sisters dies. And I literally texted my sister during it because I was sobbing. I was sobbing, fucking crying. And I texted my sister and I was like, you're my favorite person in the world. I love my sister. Like, like tears on my face. And that just kind of goes to, you know, I know that family relationships are tough and you want to be able to boil it down to that but there are you know family is complex and books like this make it seem uh, not simple this did not simplify it in any means but it really brings you back to being that feeling of being grounded of like what really really matters in this life material objects do not matter you know earthly wealth and and material goods, what matters is the relationships we build and the impact we leave on people. Those are the only two things that matter. And uh, wow, what what a great book. Because you see her realize that. And there are so many points in this book. I'm going to get emotional. There are so many points in the book where, you know, she goes from, I genuinely don't care if I live or die. Like, I don't care. If I fucking died right now, good. I deserve it. I deserve all the punishment. This is you know, I'm, I'm paying for my sins. I understand. Just fucking take me. But that's the coward's way out. You know, that just take me. You see her go from that to this complete opposite end of the spectrum of you cannot have good things in life unless you suffer through the bad. You cannot appreciate the blessings that come to you if you cannot experience and endure the bad. And that's so cliche, but holy fuck. If you're being pulled out of a depressive state of mind, a realization, a simple platitude like that can really be the difference between, you know, life or death. I really, this idea of coming out, you see the light at the end of the tunnel and you could get to come out of the tunnel and step into the light. And you get to wake up every morning with a re renewed sense of joy and curiosity for what the day can bring and what life can bring. There is so much beauty. That's what I got from this book. That's what this fairy porn book gave me, is that life is to be enjoyed. And it is so much sweeter and richer when you are holding the hand of your sister. Yeah, I'm going to cry. I just love being a woman. <laughs> And friendship is so magical. <laughs>
And I miss my hometown friends. <sighs> okay, anyway, go read this book. Oh, dude. Fucking grow up, you know? This episode is sponsored by Tinder. It's time to set the vibe for 2024, guys. If you're ready to level up your dating goals this year and attract the right energy, Tinder is the perfect place to start. Let's ditch the superficial vibes and dive into deep conversations that spark something real. It starts with a swipe. Whether you're looking for romantic connections, planning epic escapades, or just expanding your circle. Want to know where to start? Tinder's got cool new features like prompts and quizzes, making it a breeze to give details about yourself and learn more about your potential matches. Tinder makes it easy to be your authentic self right from the get-go. You got a ton of opportunities to help find exactly what you're looking for on Tinder. This year, let's shake things up on Tinder, because let's face it, other apps are hard. Tinder is easy. Don't wait around. Go grab your phone and download Tinder now. Explore all the possibilities for yourself. Tinder, it starts with a swipe. Download Tinder today. Okay, hot, need him. <laughs> Let's get back to regularly scheduled programming. Need him. All right. I finished this book literally in f five days. I need to text Brooke because we were going to read it together. She was like, I'm about four chapters in. Where are you? I said, I'm going to be on page 600. <laughs> I am literally on page 600. So let's go ahead and speed that up, Brooke. So now I finished that. Um, I need to text her that I finished it and we'll we'll talk about it. But Next is Powerless. I mentioned Powerless on the last episode. The author reached out to me. I didn't realize the author, her name's Lauren Roberts, Broski Nation. She's Broski Nation as fuck, dude. I'm honored. And if the book sucks, hey, I won't say it. <laughs> I won't say it because a member of Broski Nation can do no wrong. A member of Broski Nation, oh, they wrote a shitty book. Don't care. Don't care. It's a New York Times number one bestseller. Also, I'm not saying it's shitty. I haven't read it. And also, like, it's been recommended to me, so it's not shitty. And on Goodreads, it has a great rating. Uh, oh, my God, I need to rate uh, Court of Silver Flames of, of five stars on Goodreads. Wow. I'm going to write a whole fucking thesis statement on, on what it means to me. Oh, and I did go ahead and... Uh, and I do this, okay? I bought the book. I can do what I want. I dog ear pages when I don't have um, uh, annotate, annotation stickies. I bookmarked three pages. Let's see what I, let's see what I was, what resonated with me. Oh, okay. So that's going to be a porn section. <laughs> okay. Love that. Oh, they do this breathing technique. And I was like, damn, to like still their minds. I was like, damn, that actually sounds like it might hit. And so I wrote it. I, I literally dog-eared it because I was like, I need to try this later. Basically, it's you you breathe in for six counts, hold for six, and release for six. And you do that until your mind is clear. You do it until you do it for as long as you need to. And I was like, damn, that sounds, that sounds period. Oh, okay. One of the characters is having like a fucking breakdown. And one of the other characters is giving this like really encouraging speech, which I'm going to go ahead and read. I'm going to tell you that you will get through it. That you will face all of this and you will get through it. That these tears are good. These tears mean you care. I'm going to tell you that it is not too late. Not for any of it. And I can't tell you when or how, but it will get better. What you feel, this guilt and pain and self-loathing, you will get through it. But only if you are willing to fight. Only if you are willing to face it and embrace it and walk through it to emerge on the other side of it. And maybe you will still feel that tinge of pain but there is another side, a better side. You are capable of it, and I've seen it. I've seen what you can do when you're willing to fight for the people you love. So why not apply that same bravery and loyalty to yourself? And don't say you don't deserve it, because everyone deserves it. Yeah, I fucking cried, dude, okay? Whatever. Okay, so I'm gonna start Powerless, and then I've also heard that I need to start from Blood and Ash and a bunch of other, like, enemies to lovers. That's all I give a shit about, dude, enemies to lovers. I will never get tired of it. I really don't care. Uh, so I'll keep you guys updated on that. I also went to the bookstore and got a bunch of classics. Count of Monte Cristo. I bought 1984, Brave New World. All the these ones that we, like, studied in school, but I never really... I paid attention to get good grades. I didn't pay attention for retention. I did not pay attention to retain any of perhaps the moral lessons or general life teachings that they had to offer. Because uh, so many of those books, you know, like 1984 and, and anything by George Orwell are, are, I've always thought, to be cautionary tales. 
of this is what will happen to society if, or it's a tongue-in-cheek way to say this is what y'all are acting like with Animal Farm or with, you know, whatever. Uh, so I got a bunch of those and I want to read them as a pleasure read. And if curiosity brings me down the rabbit's hole, uh, I will do a further sort of Cliff's Notes or maybe, I mean, at this point, I'll be on a video, a YouTube video essay. I'll go on a YouTube video essay deep dive for a lot of those books. Uh, and then I got Red Rising, which I'll, so many of y'all, so many of y'all were really excited for me to start Red Rising. I didn't realize it had such a, it has a very fervent fan base. And it's a break from my, my MO, okay? I like a fantasy romance or a classic or, or like a deeply political classic. Yeah, Red Rising is like a science fiction dystopian novel, so I'm I'm going to get into that. I think me and Stanley are going to read it together cuz he loves all that shit. He loves Hunger Games and and uh he read he read Brandon Sanders Sanderson Sanders Way of Kings, loved it. He was like you got to read it. I was like it, is it enemies to lovers or their dragons? Don't care. Oh, they're not fucking don't care, Stanley. I literally don't care. Stop talking to me about it. But then I saw some people on TikTok talking about it and I was like, damn, I need to start that soon. I'd also love to read the Game of Thrones books all the way through. I've just never gotten around to it, you know? Every time I go to the bookstore, I see all of them. Yeah, I want to read these, man. I'll get around to it eventually. So that is that concludes the book talk section. I just had got, I had to get on here and talk about that book because I literally just finished it. I sobbed my fucking eyes out. And oh my God, there's a heart-wrenching part at the very end that is just, wow, I won't, I won't ruin it, but damn. Okay, in the vein of books, okay, hear me out. I talk a lot on this podcast about Robert Downey Jr. That may come as a joke to you. It is not in the slightest. I love Robert Downey Jr. He is one of those people where if I saw him in person, it would be a reaction akin to that of Harry Styles. I'm not joking when I say that. Like, Robert Downey Jr. means so much to me, and I don't know why. I think that personality-wise, comedy-wise, intelligence-wise, I really, really look up to him for some reason. <laughs> very, very strange not strange, but very random person to have those feelings about, incredibly parasocially attached to RDJ. Now, <laughs> I've talked about how Iron Man 2 shaped my childhood and into my like early adulthood. I love Iron Man 2. I can quote it front to back. Sherlock Holmes 2, A Game of Shadows is another movie that I can quote front to back. I recently rewatched the first Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. Not the Benedict Cumberbatch TV show, the move, the 2009 Guy Ritchie directed film, Sherlock Holmes starring Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr. I recently rewatched it. I've seen that movie probably 150 times. And I watched it through my 26 year old gaze. And I just like, I appreciate, I think, on such a more, more than just a topical level, the attention to detail of doing a film like that, like based in Victorian London. And, and there's such a campness of doing a film based on, you know, a Victorian writer, a Victorian author and doing it in like just time period. I don't, maybe I'm just gagged by time period accurate movies. <laughs> Maybe I'm just like really impressed by that. But like the attention to detail was so good. They brought in a Sherlock Holmes expert, which didn't know those existed. And I guess it's just one guy who just like really fucking loves Sherlock Holmes. Gets like, like his peener is just really hard for Sherlock Holmes for some reason. And they brought him in and like had him counsel RDJ on how to accurately play, you know, Sherlock would never do this, he would do this, and the dynamic between him and Watson would be more so this, not that. And it was such a delicate balance that they struck between the two characters and the chemistry between Jude Law and RDJ is just fantastic. If you haven't seen the movie, please go watch it. It's very important to me and my lore. Don't know why. 
Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I recently rewatched it and I was like, here is the thing. It's exactly what I want to be. It's exactly, I want to be Sherlock Holmes, dude. Okay. Do, I, it's not even like, I don't even want to fuck him. I don't want to, I, I want to be Sherlock Holmes. In my mind, I could be. Okay. Plus size, size G tit. <laughs> All right, guys. Pitching this show to HBO, we are going to do a plus-size American, Southern American remake of Sherlock Holmes starring yours truly. And guess who my Watson is? Sam Hartman. And I'm fucking him, okay? And this is when Holmes and Watson are fucking, okay? That's beside the point. That is a B-plot to the A-plot line of me being Sherlock Holmes. Stay with me. What I love about how... RDJ played Sherlock Holmes, because I'll talk about Benedict Cumberbatch in a second, is it's a beautiful mix of, of course, he is wickedly intelligent. His his deduction techniques and skills are unrivaled. You know, he is a weapon to be utilized by Scotland Yard or whoever, you know, these private people who who hire him as a private investigator, whatever. Like, of course, he's like the detective. He solves the mysteries, whatever. I appreciate how observant beyond, you know, deducing things about a crime scene or a person to come to a conclusion or, you know, uh, uh, what are the facts sort of thing. I appreciate how observant he is as a person. There is a scene in the first Sherlock Holmes. He's sitting at dinner and he's early. He's waiting for Watson and, and uh, Mary, his wife, to arrive. And he's just sitting there and he's got his clock open and he's like just listening to the clock and he's observing and listening to every single thing that's going on in the room. I know this is a movie, dude. I know it's a, a movie based on a fucking book. Indulge me. He's sitting there at the dinner table dressed to the nines and he's looking around and he hears how loud and fucking boisterous all these rich people are in this thing and he's not impressed by it. And then he looks over here and he sees a busboy shining some of the silver and looking around and making sure no one's watching and he slips one of the spoons in his pocket. Okay, he's going to go pawn off the silver for money. And then he sees someone else, uh, you know, scars that someone has or, or you know, uh, uh, maybe a hidden weapon or a hidden tattoo or maybe uh, some skin. There's a scene where he's making deductions about uh, Watson's wife. And he goes, uh, you know, you're wearing all these gems and pearls, but what I'm more interested in is the stones you're not wearing. And then she immediately kind of goes to cover her left hand and he goes, you were engaged. You betrothed. And on her skin is uh, like a tan line of where she used to wear her engagement ring. And then he goes on to deduce, honestly, incorrectly, that she left her husband because she wanted to marry a rich doctor and because he's trying to preserve his friend's integrity, you know, whatever, or his, his, uh, his pride. And she, she pours wine on him. I'm just kind of telling you the plot of the movie at this point. But she goes, right on all counts, apart from one, Mr. Holmes. I didn't leave him. He died. Right. And so now he's humbled and he feels like a dick. And then she gets up and leaves. Uh, but it's things like that of like, you are so almost, you are observant to a fault. And again, I know this is a movie, but I want to be more like that. I want. I could have fucking slayed in 20th century London, okay? No baths, big dresses to hide fupa, okay? You're not showing fupa, dude. You don't gotta show fupa. I would have been smearing that like mercury and lead makeup all over my face. I would have had rotted teeth. Hey, but they would have wanted me, okay? Who want me? <laughs> Victorian Britney, who want me? Yeah, dude, I would have slayed so much of the society back then. It was so, I mean, like any, truly any society is, it was a caste system. It was, you know, classes and 
the the wealth gap was so stark. This was industrial revolution, turn of the 20th century, Victorian England. You know, this is, it's it's a corrupt government and, and it's patriotism, but also revolution is happening. And, and it kind of swells with this, like, there's a weird uh, a socialist movement that's going on in the, the teens and the 20s and the 30s. And then there's the rise of fascist leaders in the teens, 20s and 30s. And it's like, so much is happening. I could have slayed as a brain dead housewife. I would have worn one of those little the 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 big uh, butt dresses, and I would have had one of those fancy little fascinator hats, and I would have had just mercury lead in my mouth, just oozing, drooling all over my chest. Okay, and I would have been wed off to some fat ugly man, but he would have been rich, and I would have gossiped with my girls. I would have ate sweet, <laughs> just sweetest sugar. The Coca Cola had cocaine in it, dude. I would have been living high and mighty. Take me back. Take me back to 1893. I really would have slayed. Like, it really would have been a moment. Would I have smelled like puss? Yeah. <laughs> would I have smelled like puss? Well, yeah. What's wrong? Hold on. Wait, what's wrong? Everyone smelled like puss. No, come back. Where are you going? <laughs> Wait, where are you going? Oh, it's me. I smell like puss. Oh, sorry. It's just the raw fish and chips I had for lunch earlier. Cause I'm a Londoner. That's a real song. Cause I'm a Londoner. What is this from? Maybe it's because I'm a Londoner. <laughs> literally how I would sound. Maybe it's because I'm a Londoner. So, so, so true. Cockney Rovers. Maybe it's because I'm a Londoner. Sing along. Damn, dude. I really could have thought. I'm telling you, I missed my calling. I was born as a, a, a liberal Southern woman in 1997. I could have slayed as a brain dead, maybe it's because I'm a Londoner. God save the Queen. Keep, keep Britain tidy. Keep Britain tidy. No, yes, you've got to save the Queen. I really could have done something. <laughs> I really could have done something. And would I have been allowed to read? No, probably not. Actually, <laughs> read, yes. Vote, no. When did English women gain the right? win the right to vote. Yeah. Bro, 1916, the House of Commons Speaker James William Lothar chaired a conference on electoral reform which recommended limited women's suffrage. What the fuck? Holy shit. This is so late. Holy shit. As early as 1832, petitions on women's suffrage were presented to Parliament, to UK Parliament. Because in America... Uh, the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, okay? In the UK, this is saying between 1918 and 1928. That's like almost, that's insane. Wow. Did not know that. Oh, yeah, I need to print that. Yeah, I need to print that. Cool. Well, not cool. <laughs> it took way too long. Okay, so damn. In 1893, I couldn't have voted. Damn shit. All right, we can work with that. We can work with that. I would have uh, organized potentially like backdoor uh, warehouse meetings. Okay, we would have unionized. We would have uh, put cyanide in our, our husband's whiskey or something like that. You know, like you can do uh, certain stuff like that. <laughs> you know, you can just like kind of use what's at your disposal if you really think about it. But yeah, Victorian London, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking yes. I'm thinking smelly ass, unwashed puss. How did they do tampons and pads back then? That's crazy. Oh my God, and the, the mortality rate for, our child mortality rate, crazy. Penny, penny for the paper. No, wait, what would they say? Extra, extra, read all about it. This episode is sponsored by SeatGeek. Y'all know that I am a music freak and an overall very strange, disturbed weirdo. And this year, I'm trying to have more public freakouts and see Sleep Token again, okay? With the help of SeatGeek. <laughs> 
With over 28 million downloads, SeatGeek is the number one rated ticketing app. There's more than 70,000 events every single day on SeatGeek, including concerts, sports, festivals, and more. The NBA and NHL playoffs are right around the corner, and baseball is back. Artists like Taylor Swift, Luke Combs, Ed Sheeran, and Drake are all on tour, so you're not gonna wanna miss out. They put all the tickets across the web in one place to make sure you're getting a good deal, and each ticket is rated on a scale of one to 10. So look for the green dots. Green means good, red means bad. Every ticket is backed by their buyer guarantee, and SeatGeek is the only site that lets you return your tickets ahead of the event with swaps. You can use my code BROSKI for $20 off tickets at SeatGeek. That's $20 off your first purchase with promo code BROSKI. Make sure you click the link in the description to download the app. Thanks, SeatGeek. Oh, I was talking about Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> okay, Sherlock Holmes. The thing that really intrigues me about the character of Sherlock Holmes as it was originally written is the idea of being cursed with knowledge. You are forever cursed with the overwhelming, unbearable weight of being the smartest person in the room, observing literally everything. Nothing is lost on Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, using it for arguably not evil and, and not good. You know, yes, he would solve crimes, but I don't know. I, I think the end of Sherlock's story, as he gets entangled with Moriarty and as he's kind of, in a certain sense, met his match, you know, he's met his his intellectual equal, if not Irene Adler, uh, the woman, the only woman who could ever uh, match him in wit and also in technique and charm and ever outsmart him. And uh, I, I just think that's so, I, I love Sherlock Holmes. I remember reading uh, Study in Scarlet uh, in high school and being like, holy shit, really, really. When did Study in Scarlet come out? 1887. Okay, so again, I would not have been able to vote. <laughs> and that is just something you have to live with, okay? Oh my God, I should do a whole episode on both Arthur Conan Doyle and Edgar Allan Poe because we had to study and annotate Edgar Allan Poe in my high school AP Lit class and I hated it, dude. I hated it. I really thought that I would like the Gothic literature more, the 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 Gothic overtones and the very macabre. That's when I learned what macabre, not the definition of the word, but more of the genre was. And I was like, this is not what I thought it was. And I remember we had to write our own little macabre poems and my teacher gave me a B. Okay, you don't know you're dealing with an actual published Wattpad author, bitch. <laughs> That's like giving Ulysses a fucking C plus. That's like telling Mary Shelley, mm, Frankenstein's okay, you're crazy. I wrote Allure the vampire Harry Styles fan fiction, the much loved number one selling on Wattpad, Harry Styles vampire fan fiction, Allure, and you're gonna look at me and give me a B? That's like spitting in the face of Christ. <laughs> Just nail me to the fucking cross, okay? I will die for my art. I wrote this like incredible poem, probably wasn't, about death and time and how death and time are sisters. I think both are women, even though they say father time and mother nature. And I guess time is, is kind of a, a genderless sort of whatever. I see time and death as both being women. And I think I, I wrote that to a certain extent of like they're women and they're in a feud or they're fighting over something that can never be won. And then she gave me a beat. Okay, would you give Aristotle a B? No, I digress. Anyway, Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes. The thing about Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock is he's, yes, he is genius. And yes, he is by all means like a savant, but I think Benedict played him a little bit more socially awkward than RDJ did. And I know that's part of the character, you know, inherently he is so enraptured with his studies and with his his multiple fixations and you know he's a jack of all trades he's he's good at everything he plays the violin he has an interest in botany graphology music theory all of these you know uh, military strategy all of these things that 
the average person, you know, would never take an interest in. But I think with Benedict Cumberbatch's portrayal, Benedict's came off as a little bit more, I think, self-punishing, if that makes sense. Because he's so, and part of Sherlock's character is he's so deeply jealous of when Watson has a relationship with anyone who isn't him, right? Like he loves his best broship with Dr. John Watson and anyone who steals his time away or takes him away from the cases they do together, he hates that person, you know, or he he resents that person because that's his John. And his inability to express that, you know, of like, I love the time we spend together and then you are the closest thing I've ever had to a real brother because he's estranged from Mycroft and all this shit, you know, whatever. I really just prefer RDJs. Also with Benedict Cumberbatch's being set in modern times, nah. You know, when you show me modern London, yeah, because I'm a Londoner, I have got to see Victorian London. That it puts me in it, dude. It's camp. I want to see it. I want to see the the antique furniture and the old medical equipment and the magnifying glasses and the old, you know, microscopes and whatever, like in Sherlock's studio, as it were, right? As it were. I want to see it. And I want to see the old uh, uh, portraitures. What are those called? You know what I'm talking about where it's the side profile and usually it's in this sort of like alabaster carved. Yeah, these. Victorian revival. Victorian cameo. Victorian carved shell. Maybe it's not Victorian. If y'all know what I'm talking about, let me know in the comments. There, if, if any of y'all are like antique or vintage collectors, they would wear them as pendants or brooches, but also they would sometimes be wall hangings, but they were made of like that white alabaster stone or maybe it was marble or maybe it's enamel. I really don't know. What was the purpose? Was it just for ornamentation? I really don't. Anyway, back to what I was saying. I, I just much prefer the campness of Robert Downey Jr.'s <laughs> Sherlock Holmes because... I want to exist in the world that it was written in. And I think that the costume designers and the set designers did such a fantastic job in that adaptation. And also in the second one. And also the way that the second movie ends in RDJ's Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. That's how the second one, uh, how that one ends. It's left open to him doing another one. In the original books, I think Sherlock quote unquote dies. Like he really does die, but it's left open for interpretation, obviously, because no, he did not. I really hope RDJ does another one because those movies were so monumental for me for no reason. Like, I really don't know why. It just really struck a chord with me. I love them. And I, I rewatched it last night and I was like, damn, these still hold up. And I'm going to watch Game of Shadows tonight and I'm going to quote the entire graphology scene. Okay. Anyway, moving on to the 21st century AKA 2024 today. I have something that I really want to rant about. And I, this kind of lends itself to a longer conversation about etiquette and social etiquette in the digital age. Our phones are inseparable from us. We all know this. We all have an addiction. It's kind of something that, you know, none of us are willing to really do anything about because it's inconvenient. And the whole point of smartphones and of technology is to make human life more convenient, to make it easier. And while I do think the smartphone has accomplished this, I think it has left us devoid of social etiquette in many, many ways. Here's my three things I want to say, okay? I am guilty of all these things. So I'm, let me just throw that out there before any of my friends watch this or listen to this. They're like, but you, yeah, bitch, I know. I'm trying to be better about it, okay? Because this really bothers me when other people do it or I see other people doing it and I'm like, ow. Because I, I make a concerted effort not to do these things. Number one is if we're at dinner, get your fucking phone off the table, okay? This isn't a new one. I think that shows, and I've read all these, you know, like body language analyses on YouTube and, and articles and whatever, where, you know, if you sit down to dinner with someone and you put your cell phone on the table, you are signaling to that person that whatever they have to say is just not as important as whatever your phone could uh, uh, distract you with. You know, that this, this is always going to be more important, the phone sitting on the table, than the person across from you. You are not giving them your full and undivided attention, even if your phone is muted and turned upside down. It's still on the table. It's still there. And it still sends that message. 
if you are out to dinner with someone, if you are sharing a meal of any kind, if it's, if it's, you know, for meaningful conversation, I think it's just so, so rude. And I genuinely believe this. I don't think we can double task because have you ever watched someone try to do that of like being on their phone and being like, I'm listening. And you're not like, you'll keep talking and then they'll be like, mm-hmm. Wait, what? Girl, I'm going to kill you. Like that is so disrespectful to me. I try not to do that to people. Because I know how it makes me feel. It makes me feel really fucking bad. And I know they don't mean to do that, but it makes me feel like I'm just not as interesting or you don't care enough to like actually put the fucking phone down and listen. You know, like I'm trying to have a conversation or God forbid I'm answering a question you ask and you just don't really give a shit enough about the answer to pay attention. That is number one. Number two is if you're just talking to someone in real life. It doesn't even have to be over like, you know, the loose formality of sitting across the table from someone and sharing a meal. Something as simple as, you know, sitting and waiting for something or if if you're all engaged in a conversation and that one person is on their phones and someone's talking to them or they're talking, they're not, it's just so fucking rude. And I know that it's not on purpose. Because there's something malevolent in that if that's on purpose. Like if someone's talking to you and you're scrolling on Instagram, oh my God, just shoot me. Like, I guess you hate me. But I know it's a compulsion. And so I try to be sensitive to that because my brain sends me those signals too. You know, that if there's any lull, if there's any uncomfortable silence, the compulsion is to pick up my cell phone and go on Instagram. I have got to scroll on Instagram. And TikTok adding captions, I mean, it's, it's a great update, but now I can scroll without having to listen to the music, you know, without listening to the sound. So now I can scroll on TikTok. So it's like, I, I, there's no escape. And every single silent moment of the day is geared towards colonizing that time and, and turning that time into, you know, precious hours spent on social media. I understand that was the goal. And I understand that they have succeeded in their goal. These web developers, these software developers, we have got to fight back sheeple. Because it just really guts me when that happens or I see that happening to someone else because it's not intentional, but it's intent versus impact. You know, like I, I hang out with some of my friends and I'm, I'm too shy to say something of like, are you listening? Are, are you listening to me? Like, are we actually talking or are you just wait? Are, are you speaking or waiting for me to say something so you can respond. Like you're not listening and actively engaging in the conversation. And I don't think friendships can grow if that's the basis. You know, it's just really frustrating and I don't fault the people. Also, you know, when I'm out to dinner with other people whose jobs are on the internet, but arguably whose job isn't on the internet nowadays, you know, everyone has to market themselves to a certain extent. If, if you're not marketing yourself, you're marketing your company. So it's difficult and I understand that. I'm sympathetic to it, but it doesn't make it sting any less than when you are talking to someone and they are looking at their phone. And you can tell that they're trying to do the, I'm listening, I'm listening. No, you're fucking not. What did I just say? I'll do that to my friends sometimes because my parents used to do that to me and it's a habit I try to break because that's awful too. You know, I don't want to make you feel like I'm, I'm mad or like you have to give me a status report or a, a brief fucking military summary of what I just said. But like, yeah, if you can't tell me the gist of what I just said, you aren't fucking listening to me. It just sucks. Oh my God. And the third one is driving. Oh dude. It's one thing. Like if I'm driving and I'm at a red light and I'm picking a song or I'm like maybe responding to a text that's urgent or whatever, I try not to do that. And I, I'm really cognizant of it when I have other people in the car. Oh my God, dude, I have been in the car with some of my friends and they just flat out text and drive, like going 80 on the highway. Oh, oh! I'm scared. And then you don't want to be that person that's like, but I will, I will say it. You know, okay, could you not? Could that wait until we're pulled over? And I've gotten in arguments with my friends about it too. It's just like, I literally wasn't, don't care. It's making me uncomfortable and that should be enough for you to stop. You know, like I'm not trying to fight. I'm telling you that watching you do that with your eyes off the road, I'm not saying you're a bad driver. I'm saying other people are unpredictable and we are on a crowded highway in fucking Los Angeles or wherever we are. 
and anything could happen. You have to be on alert. Like it's just so different from being stopped at a red light or being wherever, picking a song versus like full on having a text war argument with someone as you're going 80 down the highway. It's like, oh my God. But how do you approach that? It's so awkward because it's so ingrained in us. It's who we are. It's what we do. It's I am nothing without my phone. Scary thought. Scary dystopian thought. I would be wholly and utterly lost without my cell phone. And that is a wretched thought. But it's true. And again, I try to have sympathy and, and understanding. But when it comes to like, I feel like my life is endangered or I feel disrespected, how do you communicate that? And so I try to be honest about it when it pushes me over that point of like, okay, I really feel like you're not engaged. You, you don't want to be here. You know, am I really that fucking boring that you'd rather be on your phone? Okay, well, you don't have to be here. We can leave. You can leave. I want to, I could go home. I would love to go home and read my porn book, please. So yeah, that's, those are my three dystopian bullet points of the phone addiction that I acknowledge I suffer from. All of us suffer from, but we have got to beat it. We've got to be better because it's, I, I would never want to, Oh my God, if I ever made someone feel like that, you know, like I didn't care what they had to say. That's, it's just an awful feeling. So I think that will just about do it for me this week, team. Broski Report merch is still live. If you want to go get it, broski.shop. All right, team. It's on pre-order. Go get it. We've got a hoodie, a t-shirt, and a crew neck. Go get it before it's gone forever. And next week, I want to talk about the seven deadly sins. (laughs) Let's add them to the bucket list, guys. If we haven't done the seven deadly sins, we're going to go ahead and add all seven. We're going to get through them before we die. Okay? Oh, subscribe to the Broski Report YouTube channel. Please. Why not? Why not? You'll be notified. Rate us five stars on all the apps that you listen to podcasts on. It really helps. It helps me out, guys. And go subscribe to my YouTube channel, Brittany Broski. That's where I'm at. If you want to follow me on TikTok, I am at Lost My Marbles again. Okay, I'm not Brittany Bro. I don't use the Brittany Broski main TikTok account. It makes me feel gross. I posted so many ads on it. I was like, <laughs> I had to hold up my hands to the mirror and be like, what have I become? And now I can't. I can't post on it. So I, I can only post on my spam. And follow me on Instagram if you want. Okay, I really don't quell the horniness on Instagram. That's where I let it. I let it burn. I let it simmer. I let it marinate. Uh, in all of its ugliness for everyone to see. So go catch that. I love you guys. Have a good one. It's been real. See you next week. Bye-bye.